If you've been, if you've been paying attention even a little bit during your time on earth, you have, you've probably noticed that life is not fair. You notice that? Some people are born into wealth. Others are born into poverty. Some people are born into freedom. Other people are born into, into slavery or oppression or you know, under some dictatorial regime. Uh, some people use uh, rather successfully uh, illegal or dishonest means uh, and they acquire great wealth ill-gotten. And then when they, when they sort of get caught with something, they have the means to sort of tip the scales of our legal system in their favor. And some other poor schlep gets uh, defended by a public defender who's overworked and maybe not very good at his job anyway. It's, it's not fair. I've seen this in sports for years. Um, there's a kid who loves this sport and he or she has a great attitude and a strong work ethic and then some kid with a worse attitude and uh, not as good of a work ethic but who happened to be born to parents who were like taller or faster just gets the spot that kid wants. It happens all the time. It's not fair. You know, when we're kids, we hear over and over, um, cheaters never win. And then we grow up and we learn, you know what? A lot of times they do. This world is broken and therefore it is inherently unfair. This morning in the passage we're going to look at in the book of Romans, Paul is going to just kind of brush up against what I am convinced is the most unfair concept in all of Scripture. It's true. God ordained it, and it's unfair. Now, here's where it comes up. We are kind of well into the third major section of the, the body of the book of Romans. covers Romans chapters 5 through 8. And this section of Romans is all about uh, the result, the, may, the, the first major result of being justified by faith. Paul's been teaching us that we are saved, we're rescued by God, not because we're good enough to, we need rescued. We're, we're not righteous. We need, we need saved, we need rescued, and we get rescued by believing in what Jesus did at the cross. Now he's moved on to the results of that. And the first major result of our justification by faith, being declared righteous by God by believing in Jesus, is that we have hope in Christ that we would not have apart from Christ. In that, so that's the, the overarching argument Paul is making. And this passage comes up as a part of that argument. Romans 5, 12 through 21 is one of the more difficult passages to understand in this book. Peter one time wrote that Paul writes some hard things. Uh, he might have had this passage in mind. I don't know. It's difficult. I think I pretty much understand it, and I think I can help us sort of understand it, but 
but there's some heavy, weighty things in here. And what makes it worse is I think this has to be taken in one chunk to be understood. This is a comparison of Adam and Jesus. And so this section, I think, needs to be understood together, but there's just a lot in there. Here's where we're going. There's three parts in this passage. First, Paul is going to talk about the, how sin entered into the world and death came with it, and those two things dominate the world. Um, then Paul is going to compare and contrast what Adam did to humanity and what Jesus did to humanity. Uh, and then he's going to close by talking about the role of the law in the history of humanity. That's where we're going, and, and through those Three parts, Paul is, again, communicating um, that we have hope in Christ that we wouldn't have ordinarily. Let's read this passage. It's kind of big, so I'm not going to be able to fine-tooth comb this baby, but uh, we're going to learn a lot of great stuff from even a difficult passage. Romans 5, 12 through 21. Let's read this together. <clears throat> Therefore... Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed or accounted for when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Jesus. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the, dis through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Any questions over that? You got all that? Can we, should we just close that and call it a, call it a morning? Or uh, maybe we require a little, a little more. To begin, again, this, is, this whole thing is about we have hope now because we're justified by faith. We wouldn't have that hope. And so to talk about that, to talk about our hope, Paul wants to take our focus backwards. 
away from our hope that he's been telling us about and back to our curse that we were born into. According to the Bible, it it could be said that, that we as human beings have two enemies, two major enemies that rule over us, sin and death. And Paul is going to to teach us, talk to us about how those enemies got into the world and why they are, they reign over us, rule over us. Verse 12, Paul writes this, So then, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all people because all sinned, and then you see this little dash right here. That means everything that comes after that for a while is still going to be talking about this. It's a parenthesis until like in verse 18. So this is mainly what we're going to be talking about for a while. Sin entered the world through one man. Death came with it and death spread to all people because all sinned. Paul is, he's alluding to the story, part of the story of the first man, Adam. Adam, by the way, is the Hebrew word for man. The first man, his name was man. You ever know a guy named Guy? I played basketball with a guy. His name was Guy. Good guy, that guy. That's kind of like Adam. And so elsewhere, Paul calls Jesus the second Adam, the second man, man 2.0. And this is a comparison and a contrast between Adam, first man, and Jesus, the greater man. So Paul writes, sin entered the world through the one man and death through sin. According to the book of Genesis, human beings were the result of a special act of creation all at once by God. The pinnacle of God's creation was human beings. And God creates this first man, names him Adam. He creates a woman out of Adam. Later she is named Eve. At first she's just called woman. Um, And those two human beings, they were created. They were not created perfect. They were created innocent. And the difference is they had the potential to mess up. If they were perfect, you wouldn't have the potential to mess up. Um, They they were innocent, though. They had the potential to mess up, but they never had. And God gave these two some commands. We, We usually talk about one command, but he gave them some positive commands. Be fruitful and multiply. Spread out into all the earth. Those are commands. We've done pretty good with those. But they gave, God gave these two one negative command. He said, see that tree over there? No, that's not the tree, actually. That's a fake one, but just for example. Uh, you see that tree over there? You eat from that tree, I'll kill you. That was the command. Do not eat from that tree. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read the story, they eat from that tree. And the result, God already told them, is death. Um, And I've said this countless times in the Bible, death is always the separation of two things, not the annihilation of one thing. And Adam and Eve, their death for eating that tree was twofold. First, their physical death, which is the separation of someone's spirit from their body, that was inevitable. That was going to happen. Literally, uh, the Hebrew in that says, God told them, dying, you shall die. You eat from that tree, you're going to spend the rest of your life dying. And if you are over, what, 30, you know what that feels like, right? We're, we're growing, 
we're at a peak for a little bit and we spend the rest of our life like whittling away, right? Things don't work so great anymore. Dying, you shall die. That's part of it. But the other death was immediate. A spiritual death is when there's a separation between people and God. And all of a sudden, when they ate from that tree, there was a separation between them and God that had not existed before. Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the cool of the day. And suddenly, they had to hide from the one they used to be close to. Now, that's how sin entered the world. Now, the Bible always blames Adam. You ever notice that? Sin entered the world through one man. Who was the one who was deceived and ate the fruit first? Who was it? It was Eve. Adam always gets the blame. Why is that? Uh, Adam carries the culpability, the responsibility for original sin in the same way a CEO might be held responsible for the failure of the company, even though whatever messed up the company, he might not have literally done. That's kind of the same way. Also, if you read the story of Genesis, when God gave the command, do not eat from that tree, Adam was the only human being alive, if you go back and read the story. And so that command was his responsibility to teach it, and if it is not followed, it is ultimately his responsibility. And so Adam is the one who's always held sort of culpable for original sin. All right. That sin had huge, enormous, massive impacts on every descendant of Adam and Eve, which is all of us. That's how sin entered the world through one man. Death came through sin. We've gotten that far. Then death spread to all people. Spiritual death spread to all of us because of what Adam did. Paul says this over and over in this passage. He blames Adam for the condition in which we are born. You and I, we were not born innocent the way Adam and Eve were created innocent. We were born spiritually dead, separated from God because we inherited that from Adam and Eve, from Adam, according to Paul. We we don't have a choice. We don't have a chance of being righteous because we are born spiritually dead. And when someone is separated from God, guess what that leads to in their behavior? The further you are from God, the more you might, what? Sin. So spiritual death, separation from God, results in more sin, which results in more death, which results in more sin. And this is why the human race just seems to be on a downward spiral all the time. We can't help it in some ways. We're still responsible, but we really are born this way. And then Paul says, death spread to all people because all sinned. And those three words right there have, have launched a lot of debate in Christendom, and I am not going to dive too far into them. I'll tell you the sort of traditional understanding of original sin is that somehow inside Adam, maybe because all of the genetic material for the, that would result in the human race was in him, that somehow we were like all there with him and we sinned when he sinned. 
Uh, that's kind of the traditional understanding. This might make me a heretic, but I don't know, man. I just, uh, I, just have, I don't know. Paul could be saying something like this. Sin entered the world through one man. Yep, death through sin. Got that? Death spread to all people. And you know what the proof is? Because we know this because all sinned. Maybe that's just easier for me to understand. And again, that could be heretical. I ain't real sure. This is hard. But here's what I do know. We all sin. And we don't have to be taught to sin. If you've ever parented young children, you don't have to. If you do a great job raising them, are they going to be not sinners? No. Because we inherit this. And we don't, we don't have a chance. Now, Paul's already convinced us that this is true earlier in the book. Whole first section of the body of the book of Romans, Romans 1.18 through 3.20, is all about there's none righteous, not even one. We're all a wreck. We're all without excuse, right? You ever heard this argument, though? Seems kind of unfair for God to judge people based on a list of rules, and he doesn't tell everybody that list of rules. How can God judge people, condemn people based on the law, the moral requirements that are in the Bible, and not everybody even knows the Bible? Or how can God condemn people based on not believing in Jesus when they've never heard about Jesus? Ever heard of that one? God doesn't condemn people for not believing in Jesus. Do you know that? God condemns people for not being righteous. The requirement for eternal life is righteousness. The problem is none of us are righteous. And that is like fair and right. And Paul, he gave us one way to prove, to help us understand how God is going to be right and just when he condemns everyone who stands before him, whether they've heard of Jesus or God's list of rules or not. In the beginning of Romans chapter 2, Paul said this, God wouldn't even have to use his list of rules to condemn people. God could use our own list of rules to condemn us. God's, God could say, tell you what, we're just going to go back through your life and we're going to write down every moral judgment you ever made. Every time somebody made you angry because they, fill in the blank, ooh, that person made me so mad because what'd they do? They talked about me behind, their, behind my back. They stole something. They lied. They cheated. They stealed. They whatever. We'll just make a list of your moral standards, then let's go back through your life again, and I will judge you based on your own moral standards. How would we do? We're so broken, we can't even stand up to our own list of moral absolutes. That's how broken we are, and that's the standard of judgment. Are we righteous, or are we unrighteous? We are unrighteous. Now, today, Paul kind of talks about the same thing from a different from a different perspective. Is there sin? Can people be held responsible for sinning if they don't know what God considers sin? The answer is yes. And I'll get you all to agree with that in one second. I'll do what Paul does in verse 13, but I'll ask it in a question. In that time period between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that first sin, and when Moses came down Mount Sinai, and had taken dictation, 
and gave people the list of God's rules. In between Eden and Sinai, Adam and Moses were people sinners. Was there sin in the world during that time? Yes or no? Of course. Did anyone have a list of rules from God? No. There were some rules God gave to Adam and Eve back here in the garden. But that tree was locked away and gone. Nobody, there was no list of rules. But was there sin? Of course there was sin. Why? Because we're sinners. Because we're broken. Even if we don't know God's list of righteousness, we can still miss the mark of God's standards of righteousness. And that's what makes people righteous or unrighteous. That's what Paul says here. Before the law was given, there was still sin in the world. And he says this, there's no accounting for sin where there is no law. Is it sometimes hard to tell what's a sin and what's not a sin if you don't have a list of what is a sin and what's not a sin? Of course. Paul says elsewhere, it's like, I had no idea coveting. I would have had no idea that coveting was a sin if God didn't tell us coveting is a sin. It would have still been a sin every time I coveted. Every time I wanted something that wasn't mine. So there was always sin before the law. How do we know? Because death reigned. Sin brings death. Death reigned between Adam and Moses. And Paul says this, even over those who do not sin in the same way that Adam sinned. Paul's going to say this at the end. One purpose of the law, law, the law actually makes sin worse, not better. Did you know that? You do know this. Not because it just makes you want the sin, but check this out. If you've ever been a young person or raised a young person, you know this. Which of these is worse? There is a child, um, kind of a, a tween or a teenager, and they should keep their room relatively clean. And that expectation is just kind of no. Now, is it wrong that they don't keep their room as clean as they should? Sure. But isn't this worse? Mom or dad walks into the room one morning and says, listen, son, daughter, before you leave this house, you must clean this room. Mom or dad leaves, and the young person rolls his or her eyes and leaves the house anyway without cleaning it up. Which is worse? That one, right? Even though the room might be just as dirty in either place, it is worse once we know what the authority says and we disobey knowingly, that is worse. So here's what Paul has said. We're all a wreck because of what Adam did to us. There's always been sin, even if people don't know the rules, but knowing the rules does make sin worse. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that Paul's going to brush up against the most unfair thing in all of Scripture. And here's what he said so far. You did not have a chance to live righteously. You were born spiritually dead, in need of rescue, right away. You didn't have a chance of being righteous. So in some way, you sin because you're a broken, dead sinner and you had no chance 
to be anything but that. And I said, Paul's going to talk about the most unfair concept in all of Scripture, and I want you to know right now, I have not gotten to the unfair part yet. Because that ain't it. Does that seem unfair? That there's not a single person born with a chance to be good? It seems unfair, but it's not. And I, and I want you to know why this is not unfair. I'll give you two reasons. First, we should be very careful telling the God who created all of this that he's unfair in the way he runs it. One reason it's not unfair is because that is the way God ordained to make this joint. And it's his. If I went in my garage and I created a birdhouse, um, and it's a nice little birdhouse, I really like it, and I decide what I want to do with this birdhouse is put it down in my driveway and back my pickup over it, right? Both wheels, plunk, plunk, it's destroyed. You might not be able to understand why I would do that with a perfectly good birdhouse, but what could you really say? You know, could you call the police and say, Matt Maxwell destroyed his birdhouse. What would the police tell you? Like, it's his birdhouse. This place is God's birdhouse. God made this earth to show his own glory. And for eternity past, from eternity past, God was always just, gracious, and merciful. But you know what? Until God allowed sin, he had no way to demonstrate his justice. Because until there is sin, he has no one to punish justly. And until there is sin, he has no one to be gracious to. Grace is undeserved favor. And until there is sin, there's no one he can be merciful toward. And so God made this whole place and he made people he knew would sin. To demonstrate, because he wanted to demonstrate how awesome he is. And so the fact that we are born broken with no chance to be good is not unfair because the one who created us made this place. Second reason why this isn't unfair is that God is omniscient. You know what that means? What does omniscient mean? All-knowing. God knows everything. And that God knows everything means God knows everything. Okay? So God knew you from eternity past, right? Because God knows everything. He's always known everything. God knows every sin you would ever sin because God knows everything. But that's not all God knows. God knows every sin you would have sinned if your life had taken a different direction, a different turn 15 or 20 years ago. I'll put this in personal terms. I, what, nine years ago, we decided to come out here and, and pastor this church, right? Imperial Berean. There's one other church we corresponded with. Uh, didn't even talk to him on the phone, but wrote letters. It was a place in Pennsylvania. God knows. He knew. He always knew every sin I would sin here in Imperial. And I have sinned plenty since I've got here, unfortunately. God also knows, even though he knew I was never going to Pennsylvania, he knows every sin I would have sinned had I gone to Pennsylvania. Isn't that crazy? And because God knows that kind of everything, God knows the sins you would have sinned if you had been born as innocent as Adam and Eve were created. And here's what God knows. 
you would not have fared any better with your innocence than Adam and Eve fared with their innocence. So these consequences we get because of Adam's original sin may seem unfair, but they're nothing we wouldn't have earned on our own. Every one of us. All right. That's imputed sin. That's the idea that we are, um, we are born broken, separated from God, and now, now let's get to the unfair part. Paul is going to begin to compare and contrast Adam and Jesus, and here is, here's where I want to start. How many people do you think have lived between Adam and Eve in the garden and us today? And I have no idea. Like lots, right? <laughs> like billions, hundreds of billions? I don't know. How many sins? Because none of us had a chance to live without sinning since Adam and Eve. How many sins have we sinners sinned? Trillions? Hundreds of trillions? And from eternity past, God knew that he was going to offer this free gift. He was going to take the trillions of sins, hundreds of billions of sinners would sin and put the punishment and the wrath those sins deserve on the only person who never sinned once. Now that is unfair. Jesus, because he did not have, his biological father was God the Father. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He didn't have a biological dad. So he didn't inherit a sin nature. And so he could live a perfect life. He was not merely innocent. He was perfect. And so he never sinned a single sin. But because he's God and he had these infinite capacities, he had the capacity to absorb the wrath and the punishment that every single sin deserved. And that's what happened at the cross. And so now Paul is going to compare and contrast what Adam did to all of us and what Jesus provided for any of us. And the comparison, his conclusion is this. Both of these men did one thing that had huge impacts, but Christ's impact is much bigger than Adam's. Here's how he, he, how he does this. Verse 15, um, Adam's sin plunged humanity into sin and death. That may have happened. It would have happened to all of us anyway, but it is Adam's fault. He's culpable for this. His sin had massive consequences for the entire human race, but the, re- the negative results of Adam's sin really are only what would have, we would have earned ourselves anyway. And in verse 15, Jesus is the gift that Jesus gave us is so not like what Adam gave us, the curse that Adam gave us. Because through the gift of the cross, we enter into something not one single person would ever have deserved. This unmerited favor, grace, mercy, peace with God. So Adam gave us something we all would have gotten anyway. Christ offers something no one could have earned on their own. Gift is always greater than, uh, than, than merit. 
My gift is just that. It's something I don't deserve. We all would have earned what Adam gave us anyway. Um, 16, quickly, Paul argues that Jesus' impact is greater than Adam's in that, that Jesus' gift, it, it doesn't just, Adam's was one sin that spread to many. Jesus doesn't just undo Adam's one sin and make a bunch of perfect people that come. He waits until there's all those trillions of sins and he undoes the power of all of them. Of all of them. By verse 17, Paul's letting us know that because of what Jesus did, now there it's possible that there are two kinds of people on earth. Before Jesus, without Jesus, I should say, there's only one type of person. A person who's born spiritually dead, waiting for their physical death before they enter into eternal death, which is separation from God forever and ever and ever. Apart from Jesus, it's the only kind of person there is. With Jesus, there's another kind of person. Paul calls them those who receive the abundance of grace those who receive the gift of righteousness. And those kind of people reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. We are all born in Adam. Death and sin reign over us. They're our master. We have no ability to be outside of their control. But with Christ, through justification by faith, the reason we have hope is we can reign in life. Notice Verse 17, does everybody get to reign in life just from, based on this verse? Only those who what? Only those who receive the grace and the gift through Jesus Christ. That's important. I point that out because some folks try to cut Romans 5.18 out of its context and make it seem like in the end God's going to save everybody. It goes like this. Uh, just as condemnation for all people came through one sin, so too, through the one righteous act, came righteousness leading to life for all people. And people will hold that up and say, see, in the end, because Jesus died, every single person is going to be forgiven. But to make that argument, you have to ignore what Paul just said. Only those who receive the gracious gift will be saved. And what he says next in verse 19, he says, many will be made righteous. What Paul is saying as he compares and contrasts these two men is, yes, they did one thing that leads to results for, the results are, different results are offered for all people, but not everyone gets there. Righteousness that leads to life is available for all people, but there are many who will be made righteous, though not all. All right, that's a lot. That's a lot. And then Paul throws us one more curveball when he adds verses 20 and 21. And at first glance, it does not even look like this goes with the passage because Paul's going to say something he's said numerous times before. He's going to tell us about why God gave us the law. Um, before I say that, though, one more reason, this is, should have been the last slide. One more reason that what Christ did is greater than what Adam did. Answer a question for me. Is it easier to wreck something or fix something that's already been wrecked? Which is easier, to wreck the car 
or to restore the car to its mint condition. It's much easier to wreck something than to fix something. Adam helped us wreck what we already would have wrecked. And Jesus does something greater than restore us to the mint condition in which we were born, because we weren't born in mint condition. Jesus makes us something we never, ever could have been. He, he will make us, when we are glorified, absolutely perfect because of what he did for us at the cross. That's how what, Adam, what, what Jesus does for humanity is greater than what Adam did. Now Paul ends with this, the role of the law through history. Paul keeps harping away because what's, what's the main argument that Paul always hears against his gospel? You're telling me, Paul, all you have to do is believe in Jesus and then you're saved forever and ever and ever. It can't be that easy. Where's the law? Right? And we're going to start talking next week, I think, about why we still have to be obedient even though we're Christians. But Paul says this. He wants to make sure, see, make sure we know there's no salvation by being good enough. Verse 20, Paul says something incredible. The law came in so that the transgression may increase. Did the law come in to make people better? According to what Paul said right there, did God give the law so now they'll do it? I just need to tell these lunkheads what to do and what not to do, and then people will finally be better. Was that God's idea? No, because God knows everything. God knew that wasn't going to work. The law actually made sin worse, not better. The law did not come to save anyone. The law did not come to forestall or remove sin. It's too weak to do that, and it's too late to do that. We are too broken even when it shows up. The law didn't come in so that transgression would increase. Excuse me, the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace multiplied all the more. Uh, literally, Paul says something like this. Sin abounded, but grace super abounded. Like whatever is bigger than abounded, that's what grace did. It's bigger, it's stronger. So that in the end, in the same way that sin reigned in death, which is everything we've talked about all morning so far, in the same way that sin reigned in death, that's the same way that grace is going to reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's over, overriding argument here is that by justification, if we believe in Jesus, we have a hope we wouldn't normally have. Here's how this long, confusing passage, if I could boil this down as pure as I can get it, here's how it helps us build our hope. First, Paul reminds us again that naturally, normally, we are all born, dominated, controlled, ruled, and reigned by sin and death. Thanks a lot, Adam. Way to go. We have no choice. We're lost and we're hopeless. We cannot fix that by being good because that's not the reason the list of what is good came. The list of what is good came to show us how bad we are. 
And it actually makes our sin worse because we're all like that teenager that here's what the rules are and we do the opposite anyway. But at the cross, God does something greater and bigger. He introduced a stronger power that is wielded by a greater king. And that power is grace. It's mercy. It is forgiveness. It is justification by faith. By faith. Thanks, Jesus. That's why we come and get together and sing his praises. Because we are not a whole bunch of people that, oh, it's a good... It can be tempting to, you know, we come, I come to church enough, and so, you know, I'm here, I'm doing my thing, and so we don't, you know, really sing because I'm just kind of good enough. I'm just kind of getting my daily, my weekly inoculation. No, we come and we sing thanks and praise to the one who did for us what all of our goodness could never do. Made us right with God. So that's what Paul has done. Showed us how broken we are yet again. Showed us how what, what he did through Jesus is greater in all of our brokenness. Get it? But you all knew that as soon as we got done reading. Would you pray with me and we'll finish our time. Father, thank you so much for even through, uh, through a, a difficult passage and some weighty concepts, we can see how you designed the world to show your glory by showing your grace and your mercy and your justice. And that all centers on the cross. God, we are a bunch of people who could never, ever, 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 ever be good enough to be restored to you. We need rescued, we need saved, and that's what you did through the cross. God, you've provided what we need, and you are a stronger, greater king. We love you. Thank you for letting us meet together again. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and finish with us.